Our first reading today comes from the, uh, the book of Acts. I'm reading from uh, chapter 17, verses 22 to 28. Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arachus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. If you have a Bible in front of you, please turn with me to the the second chapter in your Bible, Genesis chapter 2. And unlike our reading last week, this is going to be a little bit shorter. I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 and through to verse 7. So Genesis chapter 2 and starting at verse 4, let's hear from God's word. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, And no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Well, friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be able to meet here this morning as your body, your church. We thank you for your wonderful word. And Father, we thank you for your spirit. And we pray now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will enlighten us and show us your word so that we might know you better and show you better to a broken and lost and fallen world. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, friends, last week we began our series in the awesome book of Genesis by tackling what we call the elephant in the room. That is whether the Bible's big opening chapter should be taken in a a figurative, poetic sort of a way or straight up and literal. And to help us answer this question, we applied the gold standard when it comes to biblical interpretation. And that is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so we spent our time last week delving into what the rest of the Bible had to say on the book of Genesis, chapter 1. And in this we saw the inspired word both in the New Testament and in the Old testifies to a straightforward literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. 
But friends, there is one passage of Scripture that many who disagree with this conclusion point to. Using the very same gold standard of interpretation, this passage regularly is pointed to and argued that it delivers a knockout blow to us literalists. Now, where is this section of Scripture found? Well, friends, I actually just read it out. And some of you may have picked up on it as we read through it. If you didn't, let's go over it again and see if you can spot the issue. Pick it up, middle of verse 4. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, down to verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, friends, having read verse 4 and then going straight to verse 7, do you now see the issue, the apparent contradiction with what we said here compared to chapter 1? Now, if not, here it is. The opening chapter of the Bible clearly states that vegetation was created before man. Plants, day three, man, day six. But right here at the start of chapter two, this order seems to be switched around, doesn't it? Man is clearly formed before any shrub of the field or plant of the field had yet appeared. Now, friends, this different order of events has seen many a liberal scholar shout from the rooftops Clearly, there were two contradictory creation accounts floating around when the Bible was put together. And because they couldn't agree on which one was the right one, a decision was made to slot them both in, one after the other. And friends, sadly, many evangelical scholars have been convinced by this two creation accounts theory. Result? The majority of Bible colleges today, including the main big ones right here in Australia, deal with this apparent contradiction by teaching that the Genesis creation account is a type of allegory or poem. The upshot of this? Well, let's just say a good number of students leaving these Bible colleges leave with the belief that our great-great-grandfather was an Adam but an amoeba. Now, friends, that conclusion would be understandable if Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 do present two contradictory accounts. The question is, do they? And because this is a pretty big and important question, So much writing on this in terms of how we read the rest of Genesis, indeed the entire Bible, we need to take a closer look at this before we talk about anything else in this passage. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, please now focus in with me on the middle of verse 4. Our author, who I believe is Moses, moves on from everything he has just put down in chapter 1 and now pens this. When the Lord God, when Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. Now friends, hitting the pause button right there, everybody who reads that would all agree 
that this verse along with the next two are written to inform us what the conditions on the earth was like right before God created Adam. And Moses' main point concerning this is he wants us to be clear. He wants us to be crystal clear something was absent when God got to work. Now, what was not on the ground? Shrubs of the field or plants of the field, he tells us. Now, why is Moses so keen for us to be clear about this? And related to that question, why is he also super keen to call this vegetation of the field? I mean, why not simply write, no shrub or plant had yet appeared? I mean, back in chapter 1, he gives a whole lot more information about vegetation there, doesn't he? But not once is any of the different varieties referred to as of the field. But now in chapter 2, we are to be very clear that both varieties most certainly are. Now with this in mind, a good place to start as we investigate this, this fascinating little section is ask, is there a reason that this particular of the field detail is added? And so following our principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture, we scan forward to see if there's another passage that might shed some more light on this. And friends, it turns out we don't have to flick forward too far because in the very next chapter, have a listen to what God says to Adam after he eats of a particular forbidden fruit. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. Now friends, there is so much we could unpack here, but that's for the coming weeks. For now, sticking to our investigation, quick overview. The upshot of Adam's rebellion is cursed ground. Through hard toil he will now have to work it. And through this agricultural toil, he will eat, there it is, the plants of the field. And so we have a hit, don't we? We have a match. But how does this verse relate to ours back in chapter 2, verse 4? Well, friends, flick back there now to our passage and let's look at what it says next about this vegetation. These shrubs and plants are not yet evident why. Because God had not yet sent rain on the earth and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now friends, leaving our plants aside for just a second, here clearly we are being told about a very different world than the one we know, aren't we? And why is it so different than ours? Well, because a big event involving a snake has not happened yet. In other words, this is how the earth looked and worked before the fall, before the ground was cursed, Genesis 3.17. 
No rain from above required for things to grow. Why? Because the ground was perfectly irrigated from below. That's why. Verse 6. And no man, verse 5, was needed to work this ground. Didn't have to prepare it or work it one iota. How is that possible? Well, because, friends, this uncursed ground, perfectly irrigated, produced precisely as God told it to. Genesis chapter 1. But a time is coming when these perfect agricultural conditions on the earth are going to change. Plants will not be watered perfectly from the ground up and so will be t- depend on extra water from above. These plants will also need extra help from man from germination through to harvest to survive. As they, like everything else in creation, will be weakened and affected by the fall. Now friends, these varieties are clearly future as we are still in the very good world of Genesis chapter 1. And so we see these plants of the field are different from the plants of the garden, which Adam will eat from when he is placed in it. Verses 8 and 9. And so, friends, stepping back, here's our picture. Verses 4 and 6 is not a different creation account. Rather, it's telling us what the creation looked like before it was spoiled. That's the point. Now Moses wants us to be very clear that the earth, the ground, the soil is the very good stuff of Genesis chapter 1 and not the cursed stuff of Genesis chapter 3. Now why is he so keen for us to be clear on this? Well, friends, let's now read on. Start of verse 7, have a look. The Lord God formed the man from what? From the dust of the ground. Our friends, there it is in black and white. We are to be clear about the untainted ground because God now uses it to create man. The potter uses uncorrupted clay to shape and fashion us. Now, why is that so important for us to know? Well, friends, consider this. So many religions and philosophies, past and present, teach us that all of our problems stem from the fact that we are stuck in physicality, in our bodies. All our strife and struggle stems from the body, its appetites, its weaknesses, its decline conspires together to bring us down. It's the body that's sinful. The answer to all of this, they say, we need to free our spirit from the body to be truly free. Only then will we finally escape corruption and enter paradise. But friends, when you open the Bible, what is the very first thing it tells us about us? God purposely gives us physicality. Is this physicality flawed or deficient in any way? No. 
For God uses the good soil of Genesis chapter 1. Why give us this physicality? To put his stamp on the physical world that he just created. A man is to be a physical representation, a hard copy, if you like, of Yahweh God in his creation. And that intention, friends, should tell us when it comes to God shaping and fashioning us in his image, he did his very, very best work. Reflecting on this, preacher Dr. Richard Phillips says, in the creation of man, God personally and very deliberately pours all his divine wisdom, artistry and skill into our design. Everything about our physical makeup, inside and out, reflects the full genius of the mind of God. I remember watching a documentary once on the role of the human liver. And the upshot of the show, having taken us through all the different intricate and specialised jobs the liver does, is if we were to try and build a machine for a person missing this organ, we would need a warehouse more than an acre in diameter to house such a machine. Just one organ. Reflecting on the miracle of our makeup, David declares in Psalm 139, I praise you, Yahweh God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And friends, right here in verse 7 is the moment he puts his mind to the task and fashions us from head to toe that we might stand upright, look out upon Yahweh's awesome creation and rule it as his representative. But friends, for this mandate to be carried out, humankind must reflect God not just outwardly, but inwardly as well. And so verse 7 in full, have a look at it. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And so we see the very first man from whom we all come was specially handmade by God. The finishing touch to his special creation, not to then command him to now breathe like every other creature, but by giving Adam the kiss of life. God literally breathes his ruach, his divine spirit, into Adam. And so this physical, spiritual representation opened his eyes. And unlike the animals, the first thing he saw was his father face to face. And friends, while we may have trouble comprehending that, even believing that, you know, such an intimate personal picture between man and God. Don't forget the world Adam is born into is so different to ours. No sin, no fall, no brokenness, nothing to block the relationship with God from which Adam was made. The very good world of Genesis 1 and 2 is a place God created not to be distant from us, but close. 
Make no mistake, God made himself personally available to Adam such that he could walk and talk with him in the cool of the evening. What blocks us from doing the same? Well, it's sin, isn't it? Which is why at the centre of the Bible, well, that's all about a cross which takes that away. But here sin is not in the frame, is it? It's not in the picture. And so Adam's first moments are with Yahweh God, up close and personal with him. And while the Bible doesn't record what God then said next to Adam, I reckon it's a pretty safe guess that he filled him now in on the privilege of what it means to be made in his image. And friends, while whole libraries could be filled with what that truth means for us, let's begin with the most obvious. As soon as God spoke to him, to to Adam, Adam heard and understood what God was saying to him perfectly. Adam and only Adam was on the same communication page with the divine. And as Adam heard and took in God's words, he was able to then think on them. He was able to think, he was able to reflect, he was able to marvel and contemplate on all that God told him. Now friends, this amazing ability tells us so much about what it means to be created in the image of God, doesn't it? Adam was made self-aware, conscious, present, mindful, in a way all the other living creatures were clearly not. Along with this capacity, Adam was also given a range of responses and abilities that were also clearly above the pay grade of any other animal. Now, for example, he was able to imagine something in his mind's eye and then using the creation around him, bring this thing into reality. He was able to create. Adam could also appreciate and make music, think mathematically and so much more. My friends, the world around us today, this building that we are sitting in, the chairs we are sitting on, what we jumped into this morning to get us to church, all testify to our image-bearing nature. But the thing that testifies to this more than anything else is Adam's ability to talk, love and laugh, intimately relate to Yahweh God. Because, friends, above all else, for this he was made, for this You were made. So question, are you living out your created purpose? Did you even know that this is your purpose on earth? Now the first question in the shorter catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to love God and enjoy him forever. Now, friends, if that's the first time you heard that and would like to find out more, we are running a great course all about bringing you and God back together again. If you want to know more about that, please have a chat with me later on. And so Adam learned of the great privilege of knowing and being known by God. 
learned all the ways he as God's son was equipped to represent God on earth. But friends, in all the ways God explained to Adam the similarities between them in this task, you can be sure God also explained to Adam the differences, the differences between them. And the main big one is right there in verse 7, isn't it? God is the life giver. Man is the life receiver. Yahweh gave Adam his first breath and he is completely dependent on him for the next and the next. Now there are many, many other ways Adam is unlike God. But verse 7 points out the biggest difference of all. Yahweh is the creator. We are the created He has life in himself. We do not. Now reflecting on this verse, John Calvin writes, one must be exceedingly daft who doesn't learn one main response to this truth. Humility. And during the week I was talking to someone about our passage today and they they asked me, that all sounds great. But what do you reckon is the main application that we might take away from chapter 2, verse 4 and 7? And friends, that quote from Calvin sums it up for us perfectly. Verses 4 and 7 are all about assuring us we were made from good dust, yes, but it was dust all the same. We have so many God-like qualities, yes, But that's only because God, having fashioned us, graciously chose to breathe his spirit into us. Remembering our Genesis, having the truth of verse 7 firmly embedded in both heart and mind, guards against the biggest blocker to knowing and being known by God. Pride. It's pride that blocks us from accepting the beauty and the limitations of Adam. And friends, if we can't accept the first Adam, you can bet we are not going to accept the second, the one who came in our dusty form and then died a dusty, horrible death to save us from returning to the dust from which we came. Friends, knowing and owning our beginning is the first crucial step that puts us on the path that leads us back to our Creator. A narrow path, yes, but the only path to life. A life where there will be no crying, mourning, sickness or pain. Because, friends, the destination is a new heavens and a new earth where the Genesis 3 curse is no more. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we join David in that great psalm of praise that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But Heavenly Father, we want to recognise as 
as so many in the world don't want to recognize we are made from you we are made in your image we are not god now heavenly father we thank you for this particular passage of scripture that demonstrates to us so clearly of the wonderful reality of being made in your image and also the limitations of it. Our Heavenly Father, help us to know and understand and be so thankful for the first human, Adam, from which we all come. Help us, Lord, to know the literal truth of this passage and not get caught up in sidetracks that take us away from actually hearing the main thing this verse wants to tell us. We are made in your image, specifically, perfectly back then, but we fell. And so, Father, we thank you for the rest of the Bible, which teaches us how we come back to you through your Son. Our Heavenly Father, as we continue in this wonderful book, keep us close to you, knowing, believing, following all the wonderful truths you tell us here so that we might know you better and as we prayed before, show you better to a lost world. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.